Okay, that's the passage we're looking at. So if you've got a Bible, 836 again, keep it open and we'll preach from there. Let's pray for a moment and ask God for his help. Father, you sent your son into the world and he came preaching the gospel. He came proclaiming repentance and faith in the good news. And since then, in your will, you have chosen that imperfect men should carry on what he has done and preach. And it is through these imperfect men that you call people to repentance and faith in your son as they proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So we pray in that same way, humbly, we come to you now and ask that you would enact that same thing here and now. Through the words of imperfect men, proclaim loudly the good news of Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit draw every heart to repent and believe the gospel. Come aid us, we ask, by the Spirit, for the sake of the Son, to the glory of the Father, we pray. Amen. Okay, if you saw a billboard and on it, it just said, just do it, you would know that we were talking about? Okay, if you saw melts in your mouth, not in your hands, you would know? If it said the ultimate driving machine, you would know? Okay, uh, part of the success of these companies is they have found a way to take their entire thing and boil it down into one sentence. I mean, it's incredible, right? I just gave you a few words, and you knew the massive thing behind it. In just one sentence, you knew the message that this thing wanted to put forth. Now, what if we could do that with Christianity? If I said in one sentence, tell me the essence, the heart, the message of Christianity, I'd imagine that'd be a difficult thing to do. In fact, I imagine if we surveyed this room, I'd bet we'd come up with all kinds of sentences as we tried to get at the heart of what Christianity is about. If I said to you, what is the essence of the Christian faith? What is Jesus? What did he come to proclaim? What did he come to announce? What's the heart of his message? In one sentence, what would that be? Well, in the passage we're going to look at today, Mark 1, 14 and 15, that's exactly what we're going to get. That in one sentence, Mark is going to give us what Jesus Christ came to declare. And therefore, what Christianity is essentially about. Mark is going to say, I will tell you in one sentence the essential message of the Christian faith. Now that's something. To take all of Christianity, or for example, even the Bible. You've got 66 books, thousands of pages. By one count I heard, 800,000 words. Now, if I said you could take all those 800,000 words and those thousands of pages and those 66 books and boil it down to one sentence, that would be a sentence worth paying attention to. In fact, it's the first sentence out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel according to Mark. That's how important this sentence is, that if you were going to boil it all down, here it is. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the sentence. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That sentence is to Christianity what just do it is to Nike. Or in good hands is to Allstate. It is the essence of what Jesus came to declare and proclaim. 
Now, even though it's just one sentence, it's a dense sentence. And if we're going to say, this is the heart of everything Jesus came to proclaim, meaning, if you took all of Jesus' sermons, and all the preaching that he did, and all the parables that he taught, and the stories that he said, and the teaching that he gave, and you boiled it all down, it would boil down to this one simple, yet complex and dense sentence. And so, if this is what Jesus is about, if this is what all of Christianity is about, we would do well to make sure that we get what we mean by this sentence. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, before Mark gives us that sentence, he's actually going to give you one piece of information, one piece of background so that you could set the scene. Did you notice? He tells us that John was arrested. Look in your Bibles. Mark 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What's happening in the narrative is it's almost as if Mark is saying, John leaves stage left and Jesus appears at center stage. That's what he's doing. It's almost as if John has run and now he's passed the baton to Jesus. And now it's Jesus' turn to run his course. It's as if John is saying, Mark is saying, John was sort of like the opening act, right? If if you're the opening act for Coldplay, you're going to sing to a packed stadium, but you know nobody's there for you. You're not the point, right? That's what John's entire ministry was. He was the opening act. One preacher said, John was the pointer, Jesus was the point. And so now, John has done what God had entrusted him to do. John's ministry is over. John's purpose has been fulfilled. And so John exits stage left so that Jesus can appear so that the main event can come to the surface. Now, it might be worth noticing here that the text says John was arrested. Commentators love to point out that that phrase there, arrested, that we translate, is actually literally the words handed over. That what Jesus was, was John was, was handed over. And why that's important is because later in Mark's account, those same words will be used to describe what happens to Jesus. It's as if Mark is hinting, hey, you see what happened to John? That's what's going to happen to Jesus. It's, it's Mark's way of hinting at John was the forerunner for Jesus in every way. If John's ministry was getting you ready for Jesus' ministry, John's message of repentance was getting you ready for Jesus' message of repentance, and the fate that came to John is getting you ready for the fate that is coming to Jesus. That just as John was handed over for preaching repentance, so too Jesus will be handed over for preaching repentance. That even as John was unjustly arrested, suffered, and died, guess what awaits Jesus? Mark is hinting. That he too will be unjustly arrested, suffer, and die. Perhaps what's even more relevant to us is that you should know these words handed over are not just spoken of John and not even just spoken of Jesus. In Mark 13, it's spoken of all of us as well. That what happened to John for preaching repentance and what happens to Jesus for preaching repentance is what's going to happen to all those who would dare to preach repentance. To all who would proclaim repentance and faith in the gospel. That what happened to John and happened to Jesus is what will happen to all Christians who follow him. 
It, it might be worth noting that scholars tell us that when Mark is writing these words, in all likelihood he may have been in Rome writing to Roman Christians who while he is writing these words were themselves being handed over. Being handed over under Nero. Being handed over to be fed to lions, devoured by wild animals, lit up as torches to light Nero's garden. You imagine, wouldn't it have been some measure of comfort to them as they await persecution, as they await their own martyrdom, as they wonder in their jail cells, where are you, God? As they ask themselves, did we turn wrong somewhere? Why is this happening to us? Wouldn't it have been some measure of comfort to know if you've been handed over? Take heart, John was handed over. Take heart, nay, Jesus was handed over. Now, it's almost embarrassing, you can almost not even say the sentence without blushing, for us to compare what we go through to what they went through. But nevertheless, if you find yourself hated, if you find yourself misunderstood, if you find yourself passed over for that promotion, or disinvited from parties, or unfriended, if you find yourself labeled a fundamentalist or a bigot or narrow-minded, if you find yourself slandered in any way for proclaiming the gospel, will it not be a measure of comfort to you to know that if you look back over your shoulder, you would find a long line of faithful Christians before you? And that way at the back of that lining, waving from almost where it begins, would be John and Jesus. And in that moment, you would take that measure of comfort going, I'm exactly in the line God wants me to be. I'm, I'm doing exactly what he wants me to do. I ought not be surprised if I find myself handed over. This is what happens to all those who have proclaimed the gospel. In fact, the opposite would almost set in your heart too, which is, if I find no hardship, then I should ask myself, what line am I standing in? Because when I look over my shoulder, the line of those who have been faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus included those who were handed over, including John, including Jesus. Mark tells us John has been arrested. He has entered stage, exited stage left. Jesus has taken center stage. Jesus shows up, and so now Jesus proclaims. Verse 14 after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's our sentence. There's Jesus' sermon. Now, listen, you can be sure that wasn't the entirety of Jesus' sermon, meaning that wasn't the whole sermon. Some of you are going, man, that was a short sermon. Why can't you preach like that, right? It's like Jesus just said, one sentence, dropped the mic, and then walked off. We can't do that because mics are expensive, and Dennis would yell at us if we dropped the mic. But the, John, Jesus is said here not as the whole of his sermon. Mark is just giving you, if you boil down all of Jesus' preaching ministry, here's what it would come down to. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel. Now, would you notice with me that Jesus showed up announcing something? 
declaring something, proclaiming something, pronouncing something. That is that Jesus didn't show up to offer a suggestion. He didn't show up giving you advice. He didn't show up presenting you a path you may want to consider walking in. He came announcing something, reporting something, declaring something. Do you get that? That you can't take Jesus and his message and make it something that may work for you or may not work for you. You can't take Jesus and his message and sort of treat it like a diet. Meaning, if your goal is to get healthy, there's a number of paths you could go down. Any number of diets you could choose. You could get on the South Beach diet or the Atkins diet or the Paleo diet or the Vegan diet or the Mediterranean diet. You could go down any one of those because we've all got one destination to get to. And that's what we tend to do with Jesus and his gospel. We tend to say, well, this might work for you and this might work for another. Let's all get to the same place. Jesus doesn't allow that because he's not offering you a path. He's not giving you a suggestion. He's not submitting for your consideration some advice. He is declaring something to you. If I said to you, the Broncos won the Super Bowl, we wouldn't bat around, well, do you think that's true? That might be true for you, but not really true for me. That's not what you do with declarations of news, things that have, events that have happened. If I said to you, the war is over, slavery has ended, those are declarations. You can accept it or you can reject it. You cannot relativize it. You cannot make it meaningful for some of us and unmeaningful for others. You, you can't take the front page of the newspaper and put it in the editorial section. It either is or is not, happened or did not, accepted or rejected. Mark is giving us history here. He's telling us, he's reporting to us that when a man named John was arrested, a man named Jesus showed up in Galilee and he announced something. What did he announce? The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I can tell by your reaction that you don't think anything earth-shattering was just proclaimed. That sounds like something religious, but nothing earth-shattering. Now, hear me, that's because we're 2,000 years removed from when it was said. Let me, let me try and describe to you what it would have sounded like, felt like, been heard like by those who were there when Jesus showed up and said that. I, I remember vividly when our firstborn, Hannah, was born, right? I remember vividly that morning. Our secondborn, Micah, not so much, right? Don't tell him that. I love the boy. I have no recollection about that morning or night or evening or afternoon, whenever it was. That, that, that's, sort of the, that's sort of the difference between the firstborn and the secondborn, right? It stinks to be the second. We have 5,000 pictures of Hannah. We have like two of Micah, right? He was born and turned five. Those are the two moments we've captured. Hannah, she blinked and we're like, okay, snap another picture, right? I, I vividly remember that morning. I remember that at that point, we had been prepared to be first-time parents. We had gone to the doctor's office countless times. We had gotten the ultrasound. We had the picture at home. We had cleaned the apartment. We went through the nesting phase and everything was spotless. We bought all the stuff you need for that baby to come. We had the car seat ready. We had a bag packed. I read what to expect when you're expecting. We read all the books. We were ready. She was due in three weeks. I remember she went to work that evening 
finished her shift at the hospital, came home. It was a snowy, perfect postcard New England day. Beautiful white outside. We went to sleep. She woke me up in the morning, just nuzzled me awake and said, it's time. That's all she had to say. Now, I didn't spring up out of bed and go, I wonder what she's talking about. Is it time for an oil change? What, 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 is, she, what is this time she's referring to? No, brothers and sisters, I sprang out of bed, put some clothes on, we grabbed the bag, I walked my wife to the car, I opened her door, I put her in, I drove to the hospital, we went to the front desk, and we said, it's time. That's all we said, and everybody knew exactly what we were talking about. Jesus shows up to a people who had been waiting for thousands of years for the kingdom of God to come. That from the moment they had taken breath in their lungs, they were told a day is coming when Yahweh will come. When his rule and reign will be known on the earth. When it will happen on earth as it is in heaven. His will will be done. His kingdom will come. The enemies will be vanquished. God's people will be spared and saved. The prophet said that when that day comes, it's going to be like the lion lies down with the lamb. It's going to be like the wine flows over the mountains. There's going to be gladness and joy. Revelations, you heard it at the beginning of the service, says when that day arrives, there will be no more sadness or sickness or death or disease. That when that day arrives, there will be no more tears, no more pain. God will be with his people and we will be his, he will be our God, we will be his people. That day is coming. Jesus shows up and just says, it's time. And nobody wondered, what is he talking about? The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Everybody knew what he was saying. It meant when the kingdom of God arrives, when that day arrives, brothers and sisters, there will be no more cancer. There will be no orphanages. There will be no funerals. When that day arrives, there will be no debt or distress. When that day arrives, there will be no addiction recovery groups or divorce care groups. When that day arrives, there will be no sadness, no tears, no sorrow. There will be no mournful goodbyes. When that day arrives, everything sad will become untrue. And God will wipe every last tear from your eye. And he will be with us and we will be with him. Tell me, even if you're not a Christian, isn't that the world you want? Even if you're not a Christian, don't you wish for the day when wars end and oppression ceases, when injustice is no more and evil is wiped out? Don't every fiber of your being go, I wish that world would come. And Jesus showed up and said, it's here. It's arrived. He essentially says, I'm here, and so it's here. Because I've arrived, the kingdom of God has arrived. Because I'm at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand. Which, by the way, means, guess who I am? That's right. I'm the king of the world. And because my feet have touched down on this planet, the rule and reign of God has touched down on this planet. Because I'm here, the kingdom of God is here. Everything you've been waiting for is at hand because I'm at hand. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if you're really listening to me, 
part of your heart should go, that's unbelievable. And part of your heart should go, time out. Because when Mark is writing this, the lion is not lying down with the lamb. Lions are devouring those who believe in the lamb. When Mark is writing this, you should be asking, what do you mean the kingdom of God is here? Has wars ceased and oppression ended? Is sin no more? Has disease and death been destroyed? Has injustice been removed? Has the devil been defeated? What do you mean the kingdom of God is at hand? Because I imagine if you looked around in that day, you would go, I don't see how the kingdom of God has touched down on this planet. And friends, 2,000 years later, I think if we looked around, we'd go, I'm not sure that the kingdom of God has dawned on our planet or touched down or been inaugurated here. I was reminded this week that if you study the history of World War II, there's one famous day, two actually, but the most famous day is a day called D-Day. And every historian will tell you D-Day was the beginning of the end. It was the day the back of the enemy was broken. D-Day, May, June 6, 1944, is the day when the Allied forces stormed the beach of Normandy. It was the beginning of the end. Germany was dead and just didn't even know it. it that moment was the decisive moment in the war, June 6, 1944. Do you know, however that the war doesn't end until V-Day, Victory Day, which doesn't come till May 8, 1945. D-Day is June 6, 1944. V-Day is May 8, 1945. And between June of 44 and May of 45, more killing and casualties happened in that one year than all the years of the war combined. I imagine if you walked around in Europe on June 9th of 44, I imagine you'd go, I don't think anything has happened. I imagine you'd go, nothing seems different. I imagine you'd go, it doesn't feel like the Allied powers have touched down on our soil. And yet, V-Day was coming. And what Jesus is proclaiming is, Christian, you live in between D-Day and V-Day. That I know it doesn't feel like the kingdom of God has broken in all the time. And I know it doesn't always feel like Jesus is on his throne, ruling and reigning over this earth. And I know it doesn't always feel like this earth now belongs to Christ. But I'm telling you, we're living in between D-Day and V-Day. The kingdom of God has come, and it's coming. It's arrived, and it's arriving. He has touched down on this planet and he will return to make it all new again. Hang in. If a pregnant mom stands in the middle of the living room and says, baby's here. Listen to me. If a pregnant mom stands in the middle of the room and says, baby's here. Now, is baby here? Yes, baby's here. And no, baby's not here. Baby's arrived and baby's coming. But I do know this. The moment she says, baby's here, Everything in the room changes. Nobody continues to act like they did one second before that announcement. Because now everyone's gathering their stuff and everyone's, everyone's preparing for this. 
Because the moment has come. The waiting is over. The time has arrived. And all the exhilaration, excitement of that moment, which you can't imagine anything would be greater than just that announcement, even pales in comparison to when baby actually comes. Jesus came and proclaimed, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's at hand. The time is fulfilled. And listen to me. What Jesus continues to do from that point out is to give you a preview of the kingdom of God. If you keep reading Mark, and that's what we're going to do in the weeks to come, you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to keep whetting your appetite with appetizers. Hear me. Appetizers are real food. It's not fake food. It's real food. But it's not the meal. It's not the main meal. And what Jesus is going to do in his ministry, he's going to give you appetizers of the kingdom. So you're going to see Jesus is going to feed the hungry. You know why? Because in the kingdom of God, there are no hungry. Jesus is going to heal the sick. You know why? Because when V-Day comes, there will be no more sick. Jesus is going to forgive sinners. Because in the kingdom of God, there will be no sinners. Jesus is going to raise the dead. Because when the kingdom of God arrives, there will be no dead. His ministry is going to give you a taste of what it will be like when the kingdom fully arrives. By the way, church, this means this is why we ought to feed the hungry and care for the poor and reconcile with one another and forgive sin because what the church is supposed to be is a preview of the kingdom of God. So that if anyone comes here, this is supposed to be a snapshot of what it looks like when the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. Every person that comes into this church is supposed to feel like they just watched a preview for heaven. Like they just saw a trailer for the kingdom of God. That when they see you love and reconcile and forgive with one another, they're supposed to get their appetite wet for what it will be like to be forgiven by God. That we ought to care and help and serve and, and be towards one another a picture. This is our mission to carry on what Jesus began because he has established the kingdom of God on earth. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now listen to me. Is that good news? Well, it depends. It depends. If I said to you, the war is over, the allied powers have won, is that good news? Not if you're a Nazi. If I said to you, the, the slavery is over, the union has won, is that good news? Not if you're a confederate. If I said to you, the Broncos have won the Super Bowl, is that good news? Not if you're Cam Newton, right? Not if you're a Carolina Panther. It depends. It depends what side you're on. Jesus comes and says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And that would be great news, except here's the problem. You're all on the wrong side. It would be great news, except you're all on the wrong side. You see, you don't like to admit this, but you're the Nazi. You're the Confederate. You're on the wrong side of this coming kingdom. 
Jesus says the kingdom of God has come. And that would be great news. The enemies of God will be defeated. The only problem is you're the enemy. The kingdom of God arrives. And when he does, he will put down the rebellion. The only problem is you're the rebel. You're on the wrong side of this. You see, a world with no sickness, no sadness, no death, no disease, where God is king, all of that would be great, except for the small problem that I want to be king. And you want to be king. It sounds wonderful, except for the problem that his kingdom comes and collides with my kingdom. Listen, be real with me for a second. You know when you get angry and frustrated at your spouse or your child or your coworker because, listen, they have the audacity, the audacity to think differently than you. I mean, just the sheer audacity that they have a different opinion than you or think things should be done a different way from you. You know that frustration that riles up in your heart? It's because deep down you have this motto that says, my kingdom come and my will be done. And any time anything crosses with that, you get riled up. Your anger and frustration doesn't come because you are concerned with the things of God. Your anger and frustration comes because someone dare cross your will and your kingdom. That's what it boils down to. You know the three-year-old that throws the temper tantrum? And the 33-year-old that throws a temper tantrum? It's deep down in their heart. They have this motto that says, my kingdom come. My will be done. And Jesus comes with his kingdom and collides with your desire to sit on your throne and call the shots in your life. That the world everybody knows should run like you think it runs. And everybody should be like you think they should be. And Jesus comes and collides. A world with no sickness, no sadness, no death. I'm in for all of it except for the small fact that Jesus has this annoying habit of constantly thinking he should run the show. Right? It's, it's fine until he thinks I should do this with my money. It's my money. Or I should have this opinion on this thing. Or I should do this with my body. It's my body. And the kingdom of Jesus and the throne of Jesus constantly collides with mine. And Jesus says, listen, that bent in your heart towards self-rule towards your will being done. That's called sin. And the kingdom of God is here. That means sin will be no more. And the only problem is you're a sinner. It'd be good news, except you're on the wrong side of this. So what should you do? He says, repent. Because the kingdom of God is at hand, because the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, and you're on the wrong side of this, repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Would you hear that? That's what you should do. You should repent. You're on the wrong side of this, so repent. Would you notice he says it to everybody? Meaning it's not like there are some people on the good side and some people on the bad side. You know, we have our labels. There's the moral people and the immoral people. There's the conservatives and the liberals. There's the religious and the irreligious. We've got our labels. Jesus throws them all into one side and says everybody has to repent. No matter what label you've adopted, you're all on the wrong side of my kingdom. Everybody is crooked and needs to be straightened out. Everybody's on the bad team and needs to apply for new citizenship. Everybody's wrong. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent. Repent. And what that means is you lay down your arms. 
You put down the rebellion. You step off the throne. You raise the white flag. You throw your hands up and surrender. When the will of Jesus collides with yours, you lose and he wins. That's repentance. Hear me. Repentance is not just being sorry. Being sorry is part of repentance. Repentance is more than that. Repentance is I'm grieved not just for what I've done, but who I am. I am a rebel, and so I am in rebellion. I'm sorry not just for the things I do, but for the very nature of who I am. I am a sinner, and so I sin. I do what I do because of who I am, and I am repenting over that. Repentance is a, a turn in your heart, in your will, in your direction. Do you hear me? It's a, a repentance is a turn in your heart, meaning I throw up the white flag, I surrender, I step off the throne of my heart. And then I turn my will. When my will collides with his, I lose, he wins. And I turn my direction. I was going this way because I called the shots and I ruled my life and now I'm going this way because he does. Repent. You're on the wrong side of the kingdom. Repent. But Jesus says repentance is just half of it. Meaning it's not just what we turn from, it's what we turn to. And that's the other part. We repent from our sin and our rebellion and we turn to something, namely faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the message of Christianity. It's not just turn around. It's not just change. Lots of people change. You're going to get a 12-step program for how you can change. Christianity is you turn from this and turn to Him. I repent and I believe the good news, the gospel. That's what you do. You believe the good news. Let me say one last thing about this and then we're done. You believe the good news. Let me, let me ask you to think about this. How could this possibly be good news? A confederate can raise the white flag. How does he have joy in his heart? A Nazi can surrender. But how is that good news? It's one thing to turn, to give up, to surrender. How could that be good news for you? Repent and believe the good news. I mean, just this week, I don't know if you saw it in the news, this week, there was a 94-year-old man brought up on trial for being a former guard at Auschwitz. 94 years old, and at 94, he's being charged with helping in the murder of 170,000 people. The main witness against him happens to be a 94-year-old survivor of Auschwitz. It's one thing to, to surrender. How, how is that good news? Well, what if there was a Jew willing to die for the crimes of the guard? What if there was a slave willing to pay for the punishment of the Confederates? The good news is that there is a king who has seen your rebellion and has taken on himself the penalty of your crimes. Who has seen your crimes and taken on himself to pay down your debt. There is a king who has seen your treason and let himself be exiled, cast out, so that you could be brought in. And here's the good news. No one made him do that. He wanted to because he loves you. 
It's the simplest thing to hear, and it's the hardest thing to actually believe. The good news is that God really loves you. And really, because of his love for you, gave his life so that though you were on the wrong side, he was cast out that you might be brought into the right side. Repent and believe the good news. Hear me. Christianity is not calling you to self-loathing. This is not, I hate myself and who I am. Christianity is saying, repent from who you are and believe the good news. Hear me one last time. That you are forgiven. You have to believe that. That right now, right here, you who have trust in Christ, you're forgiven. Your guilt has been removed. Your filth has been washed. Your stains have been cleansed. Your shame, gone. The fight of the Christian faith is to believe that. Really believe it. Not even just generally that Jesus died for the world. I need you today to believe that he died for you. Not even just generally that he forgives sins. I need you to fight to believe he has forgiven my sins. Could you imagine, friends? Would you hear this? Not self-loathing. Could you imagine that God loves you at this very moment as much as he ever will? You know what I mean by that? You know that when heaven comes and we get to heaven and we're glorified and we're perfect, no more sins, no more struggles, that perfect vision of you, that perfect future you, 10 million years into glory, do you know that God will not love you an ounce more then than he does you right now? Imperfect, in-process you is not loved an ounce less than perfect glorified you. That's the gospel. Believe it. If that were true, wouldn't you go, that is good news. And that's what Jesus says. Through no merit of yours, no contribution, no help on your part, surely and only and sheerly by the grace of God, you have been forgiven of your, all your sins. Repent and believe the good news. This is what Jesus came to proclaim. This is the essence of the Christian faith. It's time. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so let me finish by preaching to you. Meaning I'm not just giving you suggestions. I'm not offering you advice. I am declaring something to you. You can accept it or you can reject it. But you will do one or the other today. So, will you repent? And will you believe the good news? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that even now the Spirit would stir every one of us to heed you and hear you.